Let's once again go to our Heavenly Father in prayer uh, this time for our needs, our concerns, and our cares. Father in heaven, um, lift up to you this morning uh, our uh, world in need. We pray especially for uh, the little island of Gibraltar, and we pray, Father, for the growth of gospel-believing Christian churches there. We pray, Father, that in what's a very diverse little island, that they would build multicultural churches that bear witness to the glorious, reconciling power of your good news. Father, we pray for the nation of Greece this morning that in the midst of all of the economic and social turmoil they have faced in recent years, that they would find their security and their hope in Christ. We pray for the gospel to flourish there, both within and without the Orthodox Church, that people would hear the good news of Jesus and believe. We pray, Father, for an end to the persecution of religious minorities in Greece. Especially, Father, we pray for those brothers and sisters who share our faith and are persecuted because they are not born into the Orthodox Church. We pray for the large Albanian population there and the Muslim populations that have sought refuge from persecution and poor governance. And we pray, Father, that in a land of relative freedom, they would hear the message of hope and believe to eternal life. We pray for the Kasanke of Senegal. And Father, we know that there are so few who call upon your name in that group but there are a few. There is a remnant to you, and we pray that they would be bold in their witness and make known the glories of your grace. And we pray for uh, workers in your harvest to go out to those people from other places in Senegal, from other places on the continent, from other places around the world to bring hope. Father, we pray closer to home. We hear in our news this morning even of the way that we continue to treat prisoners so poorly in our jail here in Cuyahoga County. We pray, Father, that our leaders would be men and women of peace and compassion and great wisdom that we would treat even those in jail as we ourselves would want to be treated. Father, we pray even as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, uh, for those in our congregation and those in attendance this morning who are burdened by worry, whether from economic insecurity, for their jobs, their marriages, their families, the responsibilities on their plate, whether they seem rational or irrational. Help them, help us, each of us, to cast our anxieties on Christ who cares for us and to trust in his power and his hold of the universe. 
We pray that even as we come to his word to be transformed by it, and we pray that we would. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're picking up in the book of Titus this morning. Just a reminder, I see some new faces. We have these yellow cards in the back. It's just kind of let you know what uh, passages we're going to be preaching on over the next few months, and we just encourage you to pick those up, read along with us, um, check that what we're saying matches with what you're reading in your Bible during the week. We're in Titus uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, so a short little passage. I'm going to read it, and we'll, we'll talk about it. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. What comes to mind when you think of what makes a leader? What characteristics, what qualities do you think should mark a leader? I did something a little dangerous. I decided to search on Amazon for books that fit this pattern. The blank leader, where blank is an adjective. I, I had to limit it to that because otherwise this would have been non-ending. Uh, or at least a noun being used as an adjective. There had to be a ton, right? And, and, I, and I thought it might just be a kind of a good, simple way to see what people think leaders should be. Here's a sampling. The, the agile leader. There were several books with various subtitles on that name, the, the elevated leader, level up your leadership through vertical development, the emotionally healthy leader, the emotionally intelligent leader, the go-giver leader, the heart-led leader, the inclusive leader, a lot of books with various subtitles on that one, the inspirational leader, the introverted leader, the invisible leader, the listening leader, the mentor leader, the prepared leader, the resilient leader, the responsible leader, the savage leader the self-aware leader, the servant leader, the unconventional leader, the unexpected leader, the virtual leader, the zen leader, 10 ways to go from barely managing to leading fearlessly. I could keep going. And that's just books that fit a very specific pattern. There are so many out there. And no, no doubt some of these are good books. Some of them might even be great books. But I think they point to a couple realities that we can't shake. We need leaders. Organizations especially need leaders. And yet we're really unsure of what kind of leaders we need. Or at least we harbor some anxiety about the idea of becoming a leader because we consume a lot of books to tell us what we should be doing when we get that call. Well, Jesus' church is an organization. As much as we might cringe at the idea of organized religion, the word organization just comes to us from the Latin organization, I can't speak Latin, but in the late Middle Ages, meaning a, a structure of the body or its parts. And what does the Bible call Christ's church? He calls, it calls Christ's church his body. 
Christ's body has a structure with, with many parts or members, to use the old term for a body part. And so you really can't get away from the idea of organization without getting away from Christ himself. But what sorts of leaders should the organization, which is Christ's church, have? The subject of leadership is a big theme in this little letter from the Apostle Paul to Titus. But it's especially important in the passage we'll look at this week and the passage we look at next week. In this passage of Scripture, Paul speaks of leadership by reminding Titus of a task and a test, a task and a test. And between the reminders of the task and the test, we're given an important picture of what leaders of Christ's church are supposed to be like. And I want to suggest that the picture Paul paints to Titus is this, that gospel leaders do ordinary well. Gospel leaders do ordinary well. I'm going to have to defend that, I know, so let's, let's dig in. Last week we looked at the introduction of this little letter, and we saw that it was a personal letter from the Apostle Paul to his ministry partner Titus. It was probably written in the mid-60s A.D., and Paul used that introduction to encourage Titus and us to emulate the model of his ministry priorities. But why? Well, that's what we begin to learn here. Paul says, this is why I left you on Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Titus is on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea for a very specific task. There are things that are not in order in the churches that belong to Jesus on that island, and Titus needs to remedy that. Specifically, he needs to appoint elders in every city. The way Paul writes it, it seems like appointing elders is not everything that needs to be put in order, but it's a key thing that needs to be put in order. It's the thing that occupies Paul's attention, and it's something that if it's done and done well, it'll help Titus to tidy up the rest of the affairs. But what does it mean to appoint elders in every church? Elders are not old people. In Jewish culture of the time, the elders were the respected leaders of a community. And the term probably came about because of the general respect that we have for elders and the idea that people gain wisdom as they gain age. But we all know people who are, as we say, wise beyond their years. And we've probably also known one or two old fools as well. So the elders were the wise, they're the, the respected leaders in the Jewish community, and the, and the early Christians borrowed this term for the leaders in their communities. After all, they thought of themselves as Jews. And the word elder is also a synonym with the word overseer in verse 7. Paul writes to Titus that he needs to appoint elders with the qualities that he mentions in verse 5 and 6, for or because the overseer must have such qualities, qualities like the ones he goes on to list in verses 7 through 9. And if you look at places like Acts chapter 20 or 1 Peter 5, you'll see that the terms elder and overseer and its variants like oversight and oversee are used in combination, synonymously. 
And those passages also describe the role of elders and overseers as shepherding a flock. That's the role of these elders. They shepherd a flock. The word pastor is just a word that comes to us from Latin that means shepherd. In fact, that's the rarest word used in the Bible for this position. It's mostly a descriptive word to describe the type of oversight the elders have. It's a shepherding oversight. And so elders and overseers, which in some old translations like the King James is bishop, but it's the same word. Elders, overseers, and pastors all refer to the same thing in the New Testament. So that's Titus's job, appoint pastors. But notice something else. Notice how many pastors Titus is supposed to appoint. Titus is instructed to appoint elders, plural, in each city, singular. Multiple pastors for each city. And at this time, the Christian community is quite small. And most, if not all cities, there would have been one church. So we're, we're talking about multiple pastors in each church. Just like an ancient Jewish city and later an ancient Jewish synagogue would have been led by multiple elders, the Christian communities were supposed to be led by multiple elders. At least that appears to have been the normative pattern. And so this idea of having just one pastor in a, in a church doesn't seem to have a lot of support from the Bible or from history. Generally, normally, churches should have multiple elders, multiple pastors. Now, that's not the same thing as saying that a church has multiple staff members. That's different. We're not talking about staff. We're not talking about employees. We're talking about pastors. Pastors can be paid. Pastors can be unpaid. It can be how they earn their living, or it can be a voluntary endeavor. It's likely that most of the pastors on Crete were unpaid since these churches were small and often poor. But Paul, in other places, makes the case that it's okay and sometimes very good for pastors to be paid. So both are possibilities. That's why, by the way, we have multiple elders, multiple pastors here at Gateway, even though we're a relatively small church. Zach Ryback and Roland Varnas are both elders along with me. Three elders, three pastors. One of us, me, is, is paid and on staff. Two of us, Roland and Zach, are unpaid volunteers. They do their pastoring in and around their other commitments. Well, I suppose that's, that's true for me, too. I have other commitments besides this, but but by paying me, Gateway allows me to focus on pastoring and spend far more hours on it day by day, week by week, month by month. Now, Paul has criteria for elders. And it's possible that in some city or some church, there might not be multiple individuals who meet these criteria. But that should be the unusual case. And it should motivate the people and that one pastor, I suppose, to pray for and prepare men for that role. So Titus had a job. 
multiple elders in each city. And Titus was supposed to appoint any available men who met criteria. That is, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now Paul's going to expand on those criteria in verses 7 through 9, but, but these are some baseline considerations, some starting points. Three fundamental starting points. Titus isn't just supposed to appoint any people as elders, but people who are above reproach with certain types of family dynamics. To be above reproach, some translations have the word blameless. It doesn't mean a person's perfect. That would, of course, be silly because Paul writes elsewhere that all human beings are sinners and all Christians are still waiting to be made perfect. But Paul's going to lay it out there in the next verses in more detail. But the, the gist of it is this, that the person lives a compelling Christian life. You wouldn't look at them and doubt whether they are a follower of Christ. They aren't a perfect follower of Christ. But in their words and in their deeds and in their general lifestyle, you look at them and say, I've got no doubts that this guy is following Jesus. His life and his beliefs seem to be in agreement. Imperfectly, sure, but in general agreement. For Paul, that includes some things about the guy's family. He's the husband of one wife. Literally, the text says, a man of one woman. And the idea seems to be that an elder should be a man who is faithful to his one wife. He's a one-woman kind of guy. You know, in that day and age, polygamy was still practiced by Jews and maybe some local Gentile cultures. And, and throughout the Roman Empire, uh, sex was often a part of religious worship of the gods and goddesses. In fact, in many places, the mores of the day regarding sex would probably make 21st century Americans blush. And that's hard. And of course, then, like now, General unfaithfulness in a marriage is always a problem. But not so for Christian elders. Christian elders shouldn't look like the rest of the world. Faithfulness in one's marriage matters. Why? Why that above all the other things we could possibly talk about? Well, let me just give you a suggested spiritual reason and a, and a suggested practical reason. Spiritually, marriage in the New Testament is a picture of Christ and his church, of God and his people. And the way a husband loves his wife is supposed to be a picture of how Jesus loves his people. If a man can't love the picture of Christ's church, his wife, how will he love Christ's actual church. Practically, a marriage is the most intimate and trusting relationship. If a man cannot be faithful to the person who is supposed to know him best and trust him the most, his wife, why should anyone else trust him? That's a lesson I think carries over to a lot of spheres of life uh, beyond just the church. You know, maybe a guy just has a problem 
But, but if his wife can't trust him, why should I? And if a guy has repeatedly had trouble breaking the trust of his wife, I'm going to get even more suspicious, even less trusting. Fidelity in one area of life tends toward fidelity in other areas of life. Infidelity in one area of life tends toward infidelity in other areas of life. And if you break the most sacred trust in your life, why should somebody further out on that sphere of influence, further out on the sphere of nearness to you, find you trustworthy? So a man should not be appointed as an elder who has not demonstrated faithfulness to his wife. I don't think that means that a man has to be married to be a pastor. But for a single man, we might ask, is this man living a chaste life? Or is this man playing the field? It's okay to be unmarried, but his relationships with women should be above board. They should be holy. Now, Paul also says to Titus that his children are to be believers. At least that's how our translation has it. Uh, there's one Greek word that does triple duty for faith, belief, and trust. And I don't think Paul is demanding that a pastor's children be believers in the sense of being full-fledged uh, full Christians. A better translation here is faithful or perhaps loyal or trustworthy. Paul goes on to describe these children as not being open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So in other words, for Paul, faithful doesn't mean believing in Jesus so much as it means not rebellious. In one of Paul's letters to another ministry partner, Timothy, he gives Timothy a similar set of instructions about finding pastors, but there he says that they should manage their households well. And I think that's what he's getting at with these two criteria. Men who manage their households well love their wives and remain faithful to them, and they do not have children who are out of control. And again, that can be put in spiritual terms and, and practical terms. Spiritually, if you cannot care for your earthly house, how can you care for God's house? Practically, if your house is out of control, you're just in no shape to serve. Your time and your emotions and your money are going to be spent trying to help your wife and your children, assuming that you are a loving husband and father. It's going to be too much of a commitment. So that's the basic framework for Titus's task. Go into all the cities of Crete and find pastors, men who manage their households well by being faithful to their wives and giving good direction to their children. But the test for these men goes beyond being good household managers, as important as that is. Paul wants Titus to find men whose characters have been rigorously examined. So let's look at that test now. And, and Paul lists off an enormous number of adjectives here. We could probably run a sermon on each one of these adjectives, but we have to move through them a bit quickly. But they should stand out. We should pause on them. They should catch our attention. Because these should be your litmus test for church leaders. Now, these tests are grouped together. Verse 7 is a, is a series of negative tests. 
and verse 8 is a series of positive tests. So we have in verse 7, not this, not this, not this. In verse 8, but this and this and this. And then verse 9 begins to explain the reason for all this scrutiny, while also pointing out one unique test that's a little different than the others. It goes beyond character. So let's break these down into sort of the, the negative test and, and the positive test, and then sort of this other test that Paul tacks on at the, the end. The negative test first in, in verse 6, Paul says these men should not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And a heads up as we kind of get into this section here, when we're talking about character traits, you know, they're kind of talking about abstract concepts. Sometimes our word for these things, our English word, does not map exactly on how people thought back then. And so there's not always a perfect English word every Greek term in this passage. I know we like to think that every word in one language has the exact perfect equivalent in another language. It doesn't always happen that way. So we'll try to unpack these a little bit as we go while working rapidly through them. Not arrogant. This is, an actual, this is actually a negative word, like unarrogant, if we were to get really literal in translation, but that's awkward in English. And it meant something like selfless. An arrogant person tends to think about himself first and think about himself foremost. He's the best or she's the most important. The Greek philosopher Aristotle uh, famously defined virtue as a means between extremes. It's like a, a virtuous person doesn't just indulge and gorge themselves on food, but also doesn't starve himself. The virtuous person eats what he needs or what she needs. The virtuous person isn't given to rage, but he isn't unmoved in his emotions either. A virtuous person gets appropriately angry at the right time. And what's interesting about that, although there's a lot to commend about Aristotle's thinking on that, uh, for Aristotle, this unarrogance that Paul mentions was actually an extreme to be avoided. For Aristotle, it was a vice the idea that a person could be so unconcerned about himself was evil to parts of Greek thought. But for the Christian, this sort of selflessness is just modeling what our Lord and Master Jesus Christ showed us. As Paul teaches in the book of Philippians, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up everything. All the glories due to him as God in heaven and took on all the indignities due to a man on earth. Jesus suffered for sin so that sinners could go free. So that unrighteous people like me could dwell forever with a righteous God. That's the selflessness our master showed. And so we 
are, or at least ought to be, happy to live out that selflessness for others. A Christian leader, a pastor, ought to be someone who is more concerned with others and more concerned with the things of God than he is with himself. And sort of a side note, I think having a plurality of elders, having multiple pastors in a church, not a hierarchy of them, but equals, is a great way to help ensure that kind of selflessness and unarrogance. And I do worry about men who demand something different. Not quick-tempered. The idea here is a person who is cool-headed, not prone to anger or, or even contentiousness. This is not a person with no anger. There are things we ought to be angry about, sin, injustice, evil in the world. But this person does not get easily angered and doesn't go out of his way to stir up anger in others. Not a drunkard, or some translations, not addicted to wine. I think this word goes beyond wine and, and generally suggests that the person lives a sober-minded life. It's, it's not saying he never drinks. That would have been impossible in the first century. It's not saying he drinks, but he might use other psychoactive drugs, which they did have in the first century. The point is that alcohol and other substances don't cloud his thinking. He doesn't get drunk. He doesn't get high because that would dull his mind. Not violent. This word's a little tricky. It, it certainly means that a, a person isn't prone to hitting and pushing and kicking and the like, but it, it's also been suggested, and I think it's right, that, that there might be a more figurative sense of this word of not being a bully. And that's a lesson, unfortunately, a lot of American churches have yet to learn. Because we want strong and visionary leaders, because that's what we have in our culture. And so we put them in our churches. But often, not always, but often these leaders will coerce or bully others for the sake of their vision. And since they believe their vision is tied to God's mission... They can easily excuse all sorts of nastiness. But make no mistake, the pastorate is no place for a bully. It is a disqualifier. Not greedy for gain. I will once again, as I have in the past, point you to Shylin's 2013 track, False Teachers. He'll drop some names for you, but unfortunately, they're all still preaching their heresy that God wants you to be rich, and he wants you to make the pastor rich. Funny how that worked out. They don't say that part out loud, but that's how it works, isn't it? As Shy raps, tell me, who would teach you to pursue as a goal the very thing the Bible said will ruin your soul? Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money, but some of us try. But it is especially devastating when such men are given authority in the church. That should not be. Watch their lifestyles. Watch their habits. Because it's not about the bank accounts. Because, you know, some people who love money are just bad at getting it. So being poor is not a qualifier 
But being extraordinarily rich, well, that might be a disqualifier. Why? Because you can see with your own eyes that they know how to get money, but they don't know how to give it away. Generosity is greater than greed. So stay away from these things. But there's a few things that Paul wants Titus to find. Those are the things he doesn't want him to find, but here's the things he wants him to find in the men that he would appoint. They're hospitable. Literally, they love strangers. They open their homes up to others. They welcome people. They show care and consideration. Their time is rarely too exhausted for someone in need. They take care of their finances, not because they want to get rich, but so they have something to share. A lover of good. Isn't that straightforward? They love what God loves. They love God's good gifts. They love God's standards for righteousness. They rejoice in the truth. They rejoice when good triumphs. And their heart breaks when evil seems to prevail. Even when it helps their bank accounts. Even when it's politically advantageous. Even when it helps your sports team win a championship. Self-controlled. They aren't prone to extremes. But they're level-headed and they're able to enjoy life in moderation. They don't easily go to excesses of food and drink or entertainment or their money. They know how to say no to temporary pleasures in order to say yes to long-term good for God. Upright. They aren't perfect, but they celebrate God's holy standards and strive to live by them. They are fair. They are just in their speech and their actions. They treat others with respect and dignity and honor. They're holy. They live lives in devotion of God. And they're disciplined. Some scholars think this last verse in verse 8 is really just a summary of much or all of the preceding words. Discipline, in this sense, doesn't mean punishment, but steel-willed commitment to living a different kind of life, a Christian life, a life we are invited into because Jesus offers hope of a new life to those who come to him. That's 11 tests, five negative, six positive, for what these men ought to be like before God. what these men ought to be like before Titus even thinks about appointing them as pastors. So how are we doing? I'm going to be honest, it's hard to preach passages like this because they make me reflect on my own shortcomings. And None of us, of course, is perfect. But this is what an elder or a pastor should be. Are we doing okay at Gateway? Does this reflect me? Does this reflect Roland? Does this reflect Zach? What about the elders we've had in the past? 
Let me ask you a different question, though. When you think about what makes a great pastor, are these the things that come to mind? Speaking for myself, I think too often they don't. I think, how do they preach? How do they dress? What books did they write? Who invited them on their podcast? And all the while we know so little about their actual character. That's why virtual church, I think, is such a bad idea. That's why preaching on a screen is such a bad idea. I know we're streaming right now, and I don't know how long we're going to keep doing that, but I want you to know if you're out there, we want you here in person. You need to know the lives of your leaders. Leaders must be accountable. And the only way that can happen is if you can brush shoulders with that leader or that pastor, if they're just a face on a screen, whether you're in church or not, if, if it's not somebody whose life is lived on display for you to see, whose, whose house's door is open if you knock, do you even know where to knock? Then there's no way to know if those leaders pass the tests that are really important. The Apostle Paul was looked down on for his public preaching. And he lived a life of voluntary poverty, but by God's grace, he helped change the world. What matters? There's another test in, in verse 9, though. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We just read this list of things that go to character, but this one goes to the, the heart and the mind and the soul. Does he hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught? There's a whole sermon in that one verse, in the first half of that verse. Now, I just have a few minutes left, but... but the trustworthy word is the message of the scriptures, which crescendos in the gospel, the good news that there is a king who defeated sin and who defeated death. And it's good news because it means that sinners like me don't need to die eternally. Sinners like me can have eternal life. Whatever I've done in the past, whatever I do in the future, Jesus paid more than that when he offered his life on the cross and triumphed by getting up from the grave. We cannot let go of that. It is a fixed body of truth. The same hope taught by Jesus was taught by his apostles and was taught down through the ages to us. We don't innovate on that. We hold firm. We cleave to it. We cling to it. We are devoted to it. It will not escape our grasp, but we love it so much. And that commitment to the truth allows these would-be pastors to do two things. To give instruction in sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, correct doctrine, and to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, if you sense a little bit of a foreboding in this passage, you're right. The churches in Crete desperately needed men to teach sound doctrine and to rebuke false teachers. And we'll start to see that next week. 
but they weren't alone. We need it too. The Christian religion is a taught religion. It's communicated. It's explained. It's shown. It goes person to person. And we need people to teach us the truth and correct us when we go astray. I need that. But notice something. Paul doesn't tell Titus to go find excellent teachers. He tells Titus to go find men who hold firm the trustworthy message as taught. They don't need a special skill. Their knowledge of the gospel and their commitment to the gospel, not a special skill, is what allows them to give instruction and to correct naysayers. In fact, the word here isn't even teach. It's a word we often translate exhort or encourage. Sometimes when I talk to people about being an elder out here, I'm not a teacher. That's fine. There's not some special teaching skill that makes you a good elder. There are many great teachers who are terrible pastors. They have abandoned the trustworthy word and gone headfirst into all sorts of errors. But give me a man who loves the trustworthy word, whose faith and lifestyle teach better than their mouth any day. Any day. You might not be a quote-unquote teacher, but if you know the word and love the word, and would die for the word, I bet you can communicate that. Give me men who love the gospel. Now I want to wrap this up this way by asking you another question. Do these things describe you? Because I want you to notice this, and notice this carefully. Nothing on this list is special. Everything on this list is something we want from every Christian. Well, except maybe one of them, for half of you, a one-woman kind of man would be awkward for some of you. But... I mean these 11 characteristics and the idea of being blameless or above reproach, this unwavering commitment to the gospel of God's glorious grace. Are there some Christians that are not called to be hospitable? No. Are there some Christians that aren't called to be upright? No. Not called to be self-controlled? Of course we're all called to be self-controlled. Are some Christians called to be arrogant? No. Drunkards? No. Bullies? Absolutely not. You see, in the Christian religion, there isn't a super select group of especially holy people who are the leaders. And any church that teaches that or suggests that, I would suggest get out. We're all called to follow Jesus. 
to look a little bit more like Jesus day by day, to be gently chiseled into the image of Jesus by his Holy Spirit. And each and every one of the things on this list is something we hope and pray should characterize every member of Gateway Church downtown. These are the ordinary things of the Christian life. Sure, some of us will do extraordinary things. Paul was imprisoned in Rome. Tim Keller widely influenced the culture for the sake of Christ. Daniel Demecki and 42 other Christians gave their lives in the service of the gospel when they were slaughtered in their sleep in two villages in central Nigeria on May 11th and May 12th last month. Daniel Dembeki is extraordinary. Most of us will not pay the ultimate price for following Jesus. We'll be ordinary. The ordinary Christian may not be called to lay down his life in the middle of the night, but I'll, I'll tell you what ordinary Christians are called to do to live above reproach, to give up arrogance, to give up quick tempers and inebriated living, to give up violence and the love of money, to instead be marked by hospitality, a love for what God calls good with self-control and uprightness and holiness and disciplined living. Ordinary Christians are called to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And so you might say then that Christian pastors aren't super saints, but they're instead Christians who do ordinary well. They aren't perfect. God knows that I'm not. But in all their quirks and unique personalities, the test is, do they do a pretty good job of looking like a follower of Jesus is supposed to look? Do they do ordinary well? Let's pray. Father, may we be at Gateway a church of men and women who do ordinary well. that we would reach the lost and disciple well, that we might be built up in the sound and trustworthy word that was once for all delivered to the saints. And through the gentle and loving teaching and correction of one another, be built and chiseled into that image of Jesus Christ, strengthened by the Spirit. May we do ordinary well. And by being merely ordinary Christians, would we set an example of a different way of being, a different way of living, a gospel way of life for a world that desperately needs the hope of the gospel. 
And would you raise up by your spirit for us just those sorts of men to serve us as elders, as pastors, not just today, but in the future. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's sing to that Jesus.